0: So I'm uh, Nicholas of Capital Inc, and I'm delighted now to start uh, our first day uh, of the conference with uh, Tobias Lefkovich. Tobias is, is the Chief US Equity Strategist of uh, Citi and we are delighted that every year he is with us uh, making the first presentation of our conference and essentially putting the landscape, the context that, into which our conference is going to follow. Uh, Thank you Tobias, Uh, with no further delay I will turn the floor over to you uh, and thank you again for being with us for one more year and sharing your amazing insights with us. Thank you Nicholas. Uh, You you just raised the bar by saying amazing insight. I'm a little concerned about that but uh, nonetheless uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. I'd rather be there physically with you and you know uh, I think all of us are a little bit tired of being cooped up at home and, uh, you know, we were joking before, you know, we're we're all properly presenting with our jackets and, and in Nicholas' case, a tie. And okay, we're all wearing shorts as well, but that's kind of what remote uh, and work from home perspectives have done. Um, so I just want to touch on the kind of the broad market. Um, Nicholas had mentioned before we went on camera with you guys that... Uh, the market seems to be going up day in, day out. And keep in mind that we've had an interesting year to say the least since last March um, where the market collapsed alongside the coronavirus and its economic implications beyond it's kind of more health and and tragic consequences uh, with over half a million dead in in the US. Um, What's fascinating in that this has been a very different downturn and put it in the context of typically when we have an economic downturn in the US, what we typically see is investors running off to very cyclical areas or running away from cyclical areas, running towards defensive stocks. They'll buy, uh, for example, electric utilities because we all need electricity and we need to pay for that. Uh, We'll buy consumer staples because we need food to eat. Um, They'll buy healthcare stocks because we're still gonna need to take the statins to control the cholesterol. Given the bad food that we've probably eaten as well, in this kind of comfort food where people have been eating things like fried foods and, you know, and take out, which are the most healthy things as a way of kind of enjoying what is not an, an enjoyable experience. In, in that sense, um, investors didn't do that. They went defensive in the form of they bought mega cap tech stocks that had very solid balance sheets, very strong cash flow generation that could grow as well during a pandemic because they were disruptors taking market share away from uh, the incumbents. So if you couldn't go to the store in a weird way, the store came to you and used a lot of logistics to get it to you. Um, Truckers did far better than I think people would expect. And certainly e-commerce companies did phenomenally well taking that share from brick and mortar stores. And then thirdly, they went, because of the buying those tech names, they went to what would we call mega cap stocks, not just large caps. So typically, again, in terms of cyclical versus defensive, growth versus value, large cap versus small cap. In this instance, the outcome merged. There were like three circles that came into a Venn diagram and, inter- and intersected around mega cap tech stocks, growth, large cap, and defensive because they're balancing cash flow. As we move closer to... Um, we're probably going to see you know, the, the, the breakdown of that movement away from the mega caps, away from the uh, large caps and the small caps. And we've already started to see that. So I'm going to ask Eleni to bring up a slide deck uh, that we presented for you guys to give you kind of a context to understand it. So as some of you have been in the conference before, you've seen the bull and the bear sitting there and they're at least wearing suits and ties, so they don't know there's a pandemic going on. Uh, reading the newspaper, trying to figure out the differences between perception and reality. We always talk about this because we think if you want to have the secret to making money in markets, it's trying to discern what is really going on, and what do people think is going on. And we've, we've highlighted this many, many times before because there are many misperceptions in markets in general. So, and I'm going to touch on a few of these as we go along. So, if Lenny can flip to the next slide. One of the things we are probably most concerned about is where investor sentiment is. People are very excited. They see this central bank providing significant backdrop in terms of risk tolerance and risk support. Go out, buy stuff, don't worry, you're earning nothing in the bank, um, and take risk. And by doing so, what the Fed is essentially trying to do is bolster, if you wanna call it, both consumer and corporate confidence. If you and I are making more money in the markets, we feel much more, if you like, comfortable going out and spending some more money. Similarly, corporates who see their stock prices go up feel much more comfortable about hiring people and doing uh, capital expenditures. During the worst of the downturn in March of last year, we had 96% of stocks in the S&P 500 were down 20% or more from their 52 week high, suggesting that they were in bear market territory. Um, Over half were down more than 30%. When stocks are down that much, CEOs, CFO sit there and say something really wrong is out there, let's hunker down, let's fire some people, let's cut capital expenditures, let's conserve cash, let's do all these things that in a weird way create the downturn as well, even if maybe there wasn't one likely to happen, the there's a bit of a, um, if you like, kind of fulfilling that prophecy by answering and, you know, and, and responding to the down stock prices, So the Fed is very interested in getting stock prices up for that reason. There's an economic feedback loop, but our panicky euphoria model now is exceeding the levels of enthusiasm or exuberance that we even saw back in 2000 during the tech bubble. So we're in a position now that you have a high probability actually of losing some money in the markets. People are a little too excited. We don't think the world is 1999, 2000 again, in a sense there isn't a bubble necessarily in the market. There may be individual areas of the market, individual stocks, it might be around cryptocurrencies, SPACs, things like that, that look a little bit too too excitable. But if you look at the broad market, it doesn't seem that way. It's not in our opinion, 2000 for three reasons. One, it's rates in 1999, the Fed was raising rates the entire year before we had the market peak in March of 2000. Number two, We're exiting a recession in 2000, 2001. We were entering a recession. And number three, we don't have the composition of the market of being kind of these dot-com men with a plan ideas where people were given money and told, go spend it. spend every dollar you have in order to get first mover advantage. Today, the big cap tech names that are dominant in the market are also dominant in their market positions, generating a lot of cash flow. They're not kind of fly-by-night companies. They're not going to drop. 80-90% value. Could they drop 10-20? Sure, but not 80-90. And that's what really happened if those remember 2000 through 2002. So we are concerned the market can suffer 10% type pullbacks given where we are in euphoric territory today. Lenny, can you flip over to the next page please? And valuation is also pretty extended. So there are seven metrics in this valuation criteria ranging from PE to price to book, EVD, the price to sales, things like that. Um, and our seven-factor model is now, again, two standard deviations above average. It was a bit higher back in 2000, but you don't have that much room and you have some vulnerability if you want to think of it that way in terms of the valuation aspects. And from that perspective, again, it's not just sentiment that's doing this that's high, valuation is high, somewhat tied to sentiment. If you're happy, you'll buy you'll pay a premium price for something. If you're concerned, you'll pay less for it. And right now we're pretty premium priced. If you flip to the next slide, what you'll see is that people are trying to convince the investor base that it's okay, that we don't really have that much of a problem. The reason we don't have that much of a problem is because interest rates are low. So if interest rates are low, you can you can justify having a, uh, a, a lower valuation or a higher valuation. The problem is, from 1981 to 1996, if you notice the blue line and the red line really keep a very close um, connection. Uh, the price, to yield of the 10-year treasury, and which, which is the inverse of the, of the, of the yield, right? Um, and the P of the market move in tandem. And by 1996, this was identified as a so-called Fed model. The idea that you have a relationship between the interest rate environment and P of the multiple of the market. By 1996 through call it 2007, we saw this 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 relationship break down. In fact, there's a period you see them they moving almost inversely to each other. And following the global financial crisis in 2008 to now, there's been a dramatic disconnect between the two, where the price of the yield surges, but the market doesn't, and we suspect that this reflects a much higher equity risk premium. Now, people are sitting there saying, oh, rates are low, so therefore P should be higher. This hasn't worked for 25 years. Now, you're entitled to your narrative and tell your story about how you want to think about markets, but um, it isn't kind of the way we would suggest investors should think about it. So what we would tell you to do at this stage is now um, kind of move away from that perspective because the market's already pricing in very strong earnings. So if you flip one more, slide, Eleni, um, investors will see something pretty interesting, which is the blue line reflects the equity market. The red line is is, is earnings for the S&P 500, but with a nine-month lag. So what we're really seeing is the equity market's already pricing in about $185 in earnings for the S&P 500, where consensus estimates are below $170 from a bottoms-up analyst perspective. In that context, markets are essentially saying that earnings will be 10% higher than is currently forecast. So there's already an expectation for beating numbers uh, built into the market level. And you can see a high degree of correlation between the equity market movement and earnings with those nine-month lags. So by year end, investors are already there. And there could be some disappointments along the way. You know, one of the things that we're concerned about is on the next slide, that earnings revision momentum has kind of slowed. The idea that Um, upward earnings estimates are are not as positive as they were. So back in December, 80% of earnings estimates were to the upside. In January, they were 70%. In February, they were in the high 60s%. So we're kind of, there's still, again, the vast majority of those estimates are up to the upside, but they're losing some of their kind of momentum. And historically, that's been important for stock prices as well. Investors, again, have, have, if you like, ignored this to some degree. Now, people are wondering what is the catalyst that would change kind of the market direction, And there are a lot of different things that people are talking about. Um, They're worried about it to some degree that there's an end to this game that we know we're kind of living on some level of borrowed time and markets aren't supposed to reward us this much every day. So if you look to the next slide, what what investors will see is one thing we are concerned about is the potential for inflation. So this chart looks in the dark blue line. It's looking at, the manufacturing PMI's business price index, what's happening to prices at the business level. And you can see it's been rocking higher. This slide was was given to you guys a couple of days ago, so it doesn't even capture the numbers that came out yesterday in the PMI, which were further increased. So we've had months now of rising numbers. And the other line in this uh, particular chart is looking at the 10-year government yield, which has been moving up and causing a little bit of caution, but it's with a three-month lag, which means we still probably see the light blue line moving higher over the next three months. And that could, again, put some caution into the market. So inflation fears is the Fed letting things overheat is a question. The Fed will tell you they think it's transitory. They've talked about extended period of higher inflation before they're willing to pull back, but the bond market could become a little bit more concerned. again, we've seen that happen over the last several weeks. If you flip to the next slide, you'll see it isn't just the, the, um, <clears throat> the 10 year treasury yield that matters, but also what's happening to CPI. And again, here the, the dark blue line is that manufacturing PMI price index line is the consumer price index. And you can see the strong relationship again with the three month lag. And there's gonna be a base effect here as well that last year things were a bit more challenging. Now, this isn't the only issue we can be worried about. There is concern that there might be tax increases this summer. Uh, there may be trade friction continuing with China. And President Biden has talked about how they're going to still be trying to be tough. And he may do it a little bit more, um, I'm not sure the word is intelligently, but he'll do it more um, effectively by working with allies in Europe, in Japan, Canada, et cetera, to challenge China. Um, and there is concern um, amongst the administration around things like human rights abuses in China, so this trade friction issue can be used this, for other reasons, but again, it's important to have global trade. Um, one of the concerns we also have is that the governments around the world are very, are very focused on getting people out of work, back to work. So the US for instance, sitting with 10 million more people out of work today than there was a year ago at this junction. You know, we've we've been able to get many back to work from where we were at the worst points and call it April and May of last year, but there's still 10 million more people unemployed and the Fed is on a mission to get them back to full employment. we're not the only country that has that. And it might be a little bit more focused on local, Not on global. I know that shocked many people. That politicians are very focused on getting votes, and that comes from local citizenry, not global citizenry. Now, I I suspect somebody in uh, Illinois, some you know, either local or state politician, is going to sit there and say, "Say, I really don't care what people in Sri Lanka are thinking because it doesn't affect my votes." Um, And we suspect that there might be again forces both on the right and the left to kind of focus on domestic um, employment levels and less on you know, kind of the same format of free trade that we've kind of gotten used to in terms of globalization in the last 20, 30 years. Um, so this could be another area of raw point. But if we see yields move up, a number of things occur, if you flip to the next slide. What you'll see is that financials tend to do better than technology. Value tends to work more than the, the, uh, the growth kind of names. And, and that's important for a lot of reasons. Um, Growth, those growthy names are are a huge part of the market. So technology today is 28% of the S&P 500. And if you call technology adjacent, you pick up companies that use technology, but they happen to be sitting in the retailing sector, they happen to be in the uh, media entertainment group, they tend to be in communication services. Those, you add them in and you're probably close to the 38% of the market. And we refer to them as kind of the, the huskies pulling the dog sled, in this case, the market. But if you take some of those big dogs, those big mega cap stocks out, and you replace them with areas like financials, energy, industrials, these are the smaller dogs. So you're replacing Huskies with, um, if you want to call it, uh, the, you're replacing them with animals, Poodles, Chihuahuas, it's a lot harder to pull the dog sled, this creates some difficulties. If you flip to the next slide, you'll see also what happens when animals, um start to move higher. The red lines start to tick higher, the blue line tends to peak and roll over. And that's the relative, excuse me, <coughs> the relative performance of NASDAQ versus the versus the Russell 2000. So we've been bullish on the Russell 2000, um, but it's also up over 50% from its lows in October, way outpacing, or September rather, way outpacing the, the S&P 500, but also uh, we've seen NASDAQ kind of weaken to some degree. And it makes sense as you raise interest rates that valuation of those growth stocks tend to get a bit of a hiccup. Um, So not a wildly crazy concern. And if you flip to the next slide, you'll see also what tends to occur when credit conditions improve is you tend to get a rebound in industrial activity. And when that happens, the light blue line starts picking up, the darker blue line follows. And this is the components, industrials, materials, energies, earnings, which are much more cyclical. So if you think about earnings recovery, it's not going to be in the areas that have benefited the most from e-commerce adoption as a result of the COVID-19 uh, tragedy, but rather it's going to be these more deeply cyclical areas that will rebound. And again, it's not the way people like to think about it, but it is important to think about where the earnings will come from and, and why value stocks still continue to have a little bit of a lure here, despite their relative outperformance. I want to do one uh, kind of one more slide here, just to talk about valuation for a moment, because as interest rates go up, Ellen, if you can flip over, um, what has typically happened is multiples change. So if we're sitting with inflation of one two percent, that's okay, but if we start moving towards three four percent, then you start to see some multiple compression, and that is again normal when economic activity improves. In multiples, do come down to some degree. So this is not kind of a wildly you know, crazy phenomenon, it's a very realistic scenario here for markets. It's not that we think markets will implode, but we think they will tr- the S&P will trade between 3,600 and 3,800, that's um, uh, actually 3,600 and 4,000 with a 3,800 target, which is a little bit below where we are right now. Markets we think have priced in a lot of good news, justifiably, but there are some hiccups along the way and some wobbles, not a crushing blow, Again, we're not looking at bear markets or anything like that. We certainly think 5%, 10% corrections are very likely. And even the most bullish people out there think the market only has about another 7%, 8% upside. So your risk reward just isn't that attractive. It's going to be much more what's happening within the market. So I gave the analogy of one, of one set of animals, the dogs pulling the dog sled, and I'm going to give you one other analogy, which is just to think about a, a, a placid lake and you have the ducks floating on that lake. What you see on the lake is very very beautiful you know the duck or the swan floating there it's very nice but underneath the water you've got the legs going crazy the web feet are just you know paddling away to move it. you just don't see it we think that's what's going to happen in the markets the the equity market will be more um index level will be less important and will be more important what's happening below the surface where there's this constant rotation with one caveat we do think the, the small cap rally is probably nearing the end of its outperformance. We're not there quite yet, but some of our lead indicators are suggesting that. Um, and investors are getting a little bit too excited around small caps and risk around risk tolerance. It's okay to be excited, um, but, we're, you know, we have to also recognize how far we've gone. And it isn't always wonderful out there. And we don't wake up every morning and deserve to earn another 1%, 2% in our portfolios. So, um if you hear a sense of caution in my voice, um, then you're picking it up correctly. It isn't, again, terrible, watch out, the world is gonna come apart, but rather how your position in the market's gonna be particularly interesting. Um, and if I had to throw one last risk out at you, it would be around expectations. we think as the market's gone up, and Elena, you could uh, show some of the next slides, which are a bunch of disclaimers. I'm sure you can all read these very, very effectively. Um, but this what you have when you have lawyers. You got to show a lot of disclaimers. Um, you know, it, it, I knew a guy who ran for president at one point many years ago. And the book he wrote as he was running for president was called Kill All the Lawyers. Maybe not the worst idea, but um, I'm not promoting murder. Please don't take that as a as a signal to go out. I don't need to be arrested. Um, but the thing I would, I would highlight there is that expectations have risen at, alongside the market. And have they gone up a bit too far? Um, and you know, do we then disappoint? In other words, all of us can probably jump six-inch hurdles pretty easily, but when they bring that hurdle up to three feet, we have to jump it. We might trip over it, and that that could also be a problem where investors' expectations have gotten ahead of the of the likely, and that could occur in every area of the market. Uh, I'm going to stop here um, with my formal remarks, and uh, I think I've run out of time anyway.